If you guys will turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. So Luke chapter 24, and we'll read in verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. While he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while, we talked with us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Thank you, Courtney. Well, this morning, we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, and we have two weeks left. We began last October in our study in Luke, and so we're going to take this Sunday and next Sunday, and we will have wrapped up our long study in Luke. And so, if you don't know this, there are three more days, is that right? Four more days? Three? Is that right? Okay, this is good to know. Uh, till Christmas. And so, if you haven't bought a present yet um, for a loved one, or put up your Christmas tree, or put up lights, you're, no pressure, but time's getting short, and so you might want to get on top of that. But as Christmas is coming, uh, this Wednesday, right? Yes, um, I might be a little behind, um, but this Wednesday, Christmas means different things to different people, and then for those of us who are Christians, obviously, Christmas means everything we've been singing about. Christmas means the celebration, the joy of the birth of Jesus, the celebration of the birth of, of Jesus. It's the time of the year in which we celebrate, time of the year in which we focus on the fact that God himself took on human flesh and was supernaturally born into this world in, in a manger. And that he came to live among us, he came to die on a cross for us, to take the punishment for our sins that we deserve upon, him, upon himself in our place so that all those who had placed their faith and trust in him will be rescued and saved from the judgment that we deserve for our sins. And so that's what Christmas means for those who are genuine, professing Christians, faith in, in Jesus. For those who 
For many of those who are, who are not Christians, though, Christmas is a time more of, more of a time of sentimentality. It's a time of the year in which you get together with family. It's a time of the year in which decorate, put decorations up. It's a time of the year in which you exchange presents to the loved ones. It's the time of the year in which you focus on good virtues like peace and, and hope and, and love and like all of those things that I just mentioned, all of those like are really good things. All of those things, things I've done uh, this time of year, except for some of the presents, but uh, still have three days to do that. But, but those, are, those, are, those are all good, good things. So not bashing any of those things at all. But, but here's the question I want us to think about this morning. These are like two different views, two different perspectives from two different groups and two different types of people when it comes to, when it comes to Christmas. And so here's the question I want to ask. In, in light of these kind of two different views, these two different perspectives, when it comes to Christmas and what Christmas is all about and, and even who Jesus is and, and what Jesus is, has done during his life here on earth. And the question I want to ask is, is this. First, if you're a Christian, why do you believe all that? Like, I mean, I mean really, if you're a Christian, why, why do you believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah? If you're a Christian, why do you believe that Jesus is the risen Christ? If you're a Christian, maybe another way to say it is, what caused you to believe that? What, what caused you to bank your entire life on that? What, what caused you from, from not believing those truths or maybe being apathetic toward those truths or maybe even being in opposition toward those truths to suddenly one day embracing them, believing them, trusting in them, and banking and reorganizing your entire life around them? Or if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then why do you not believe these truths about Jesus? Why, why do you not believe that he's the promised Messiah? Why, why do you not believe that he's been raised from the dead? What, what is keeping you, what is causing you, what is keeping you from believing these truths and from embracing Jesus as, as Savior and, and Lord and as the risen Christ for your life and, and of the entire world? Well, those are the questions I want us to wrestle with together as we come to this specific passage of Scripture this morning. If you remember last week, we left off with the empty tomb. You have a group of women go to the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea laid the body, dead body of Jesus in. They go to that tomb, and there's no body there. They don't know where Jesus is. But in the midst of that tomb, there's two angels, two men, who tell these women that, that the reason that Jesus' body isn't there is because he's alive. He came back to life. He was raised from the dead. And so within our passage this morning then, what we're going to see are how two specific individuals, two followers of Jesus, two individuals who've been following Jesus, we're going to see how they respond to this news, how they respond to this news that they have heard that, that Jesus isn't in the tomb anymore and that Jesus has been resurrected and that Jesus is alive. And at first, what we're going to see is that they think it's a bunch of hogwash. They think it's complete, utter nonsense. They don't believe it. They're like, there's no way on earth that the dead body of Jesus came back to life. And because they don't believe that the dead body of Jesus came back to life, they, they don't believe that he was risen from the dead, and they don't believe that since he died, they don't believe that he's the Messiah. He must not be the one that we were looking for. By the end of the passage, though, and Courtney just read this, so this is like, you know, the spoiler alert already. By the end of the passage, though, what are they doing? They're believing. 
They're banking their entire life on these truths. They go, so what, what is it that caused them to go from unbelief, thinking that's a bunch of hogwash, to belief? What caused that? What was the decisive factor that caused them to go from unbelief to, to belief? What, what was it that, that, that changed? And not just that, but what caused it to change in your life? What caused it to change in, in my life? Again, if you're a Christian here, what caused you to, from going from unbelief to belief? What, what caused you to, to one day think, I don't, I don't believe that. I'm, I'm not sure about that. I'm 80%. I'll, I'll hedge my bets in that direction, but not really fully convinced, not really fully believing, not really to, ready to jump in with both feet and commit and embrace all this, to one day jumping in with both feet and embracing it all. What, what caused that? What happened to make that happen? Well, those are the questions I want us to look at within our passage this morning. What we're going to see within this passage are what I'll just call two factors that move us from unbelief to belief in Jesus. And here's the first factor we're going to look at. And this is this first factor, it's on your hand out there, but it, this is kind of last minute audible that I called here. So what's on your hand out there isn't the, the first factor. Instead, you're going to have to do some work and actually write something down here. Here's the, here's the first factor that should be on your handout here. It should be this. We must have the truth of the gospel explained to us. We must have the truth of the gospel explained to us. That's the first factor that moves us from unbelief to belief and that moved these two disciples from unbelief to belief. We must have the truth of the gospel explained to us. We see this. Look at verse 13 there. Luke writes this. He says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So here you have two followers of Jesus. At this point in time, we're, we're not told their names, but these are people who've been following Jesus for some time. They, they've seen Jesus, and his, they saw his, his, him being crucified in Jerusalem. They've heard the news about the empty tomb and what the women had seen. They've heard the news about the two angels that had come to the women and that told the women that Jesus had been resurrected and that he's alive. And so now these two individuals are making their way back. They're walking back to their hometown of Emmaus. It's about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And as they're making their walk together back to their hometown of Emmaus, they're talking with each other about all the events that have just occurred over the last few days in Jerusalem, about how Jesus was crucified by the Romans, about how the women came to the tomb that he was laid in and it was empty, and about how the angels had told the women that Jesus had been resurrected and that's why his, why his body wasn't in the tomb anymore. And so they're talking about this together, trying to make sense, and they're confused and disillusioned and uncertain about what to believe and what really happened, where in the world is his body, and, and all these things. And they're conversing with each other, talking with each other about these things. And as they're doing this, Jesus, in his resurrected body, shows up and comes to them and begins to talk to them. And, and they don't recognize him. It says that specifically there in verse 16. Luke says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. If you notice there, the word kept there, it's in the passive voice. Which means that someone or something outside of them was keeping them from recognizing that that person that is talking to them is Jesus. And do you know what that someone or something was outside of them that was keeping them from recognizing that that person was Jesus? It was none other than God himself. That God was blinding their eyes 
and keeping them from recognizing that that dude that's talking to them right in front of them, that they hear his voice, they see him with their very eyes, God is blinding them to the fact that that person is none other than the resurrected Jesus. And look what Jesus says to them in verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? In other words, what are you guys talking about? Look what Luke says. And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas, so we know the one, name of one of these guys. We, we don't know the name of the, of the other person yet. Answered him. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? Do you see the question there? You've been living under a rock? Like, everybody's heard about this. Like, are you the only person in all of Jerusalem who hasn't heard about how we thought Jesus was the Messiah and he comes into Jerusalem, and the Romans nail him to cross and crucify him. And then Joseph of Arimathea lays him in a tomb. And then three days later, this group of women show up, and they discover that the tomb is empty. And the angels tell these women that Jesus has been resurrected and that he's alive now. Like, are you telling me that you've been living under a rock, and you're clueless and naive to the, to the stories that have been, that have been out there about, about all these things? Then in verse 19, Jesus says to them, what things? So they begin to explain all of these things that have occurred over the last few days. Look at verse 19. They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And so then... This is what these two followers of Jesus, what they've been talking about together is they're traveling back to Emmaus and what they're trying to make sense of. And Jesus wants to know what you're talking about. This is what they've been talking about. So then put yourself in the shoes then of these two individuals for just a moment. For some time now, they've been living under Roman rule and Roman oppression. And in the midst of this, they remember all these promises that God made in their Hebrew scriptures in the, in the Old Testament that one day God was going to fulfill his promise and God was going to send the promised Messiah King back to his people, back to Jerusalem, and he was going to liberate them and rescue them from their enemies. And so that was the hope of Cleopas and, and this other individual, his other traveling companion. That's what they were longing for. That's what they were banking everything on in the midst of the oppression, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the, all the difficulty that they were enduring. Their hope was that this Messiah was going to come and liberate them and redeem them from the oppression and from the suffering and from the enslavement that they're ultimately under from the, from the Romans. It's what they were banking everything on. And they thought that this promise was going to be fulfilled in Jesus. They thought that Jesus was the Messiah that God had promised. And the only problem was, when Jesus finally makes his way to Jerusalem, instead of defeating the Romans and liberating Israel from Roman rule and Roman oppression, instead the Romans take him and they nail him to a cross and they crucify him and they, and they kill him. And so then when Cleopas and his traveling companions see this, all their hopes lost. They were banking everything on this, on this one man. 
to rescue and to liberate them. But now he's dead. And since he's dead, there's absolutely no way then that he could have been the Messiah. There's absolutely no way then that he was God's anointed, that God had promised to come and rescue and liberate them. If he was really the Messiah, he wouldn't have come into Jerusalem and been crucified and died. Instead, if he was really the Messiah, he would have defeated the Romans, whipped them all, and established this brand new perfect kingdom. Look then at how Jesus responds when he hears what they've been talking about. When he hears that their hope is lost. When he sees how sad they are. When he sees their unbelief. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, do you see what Jesus tells them here? He, he tells them they got it all wrong. They've got it all wrong. They think that his death proves that he's not the Messiah. And he tells them that his death proves that he is the Messiah. And, and the way that it proves that he is the Messiah, the way that he proves that he is the Messiah is that he takes them all the way back to the Old Testament. And beginning with the writings of Moses, meaning the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the, the Pentateuch there, and all the prophets and all the rest of the Old Testament, he takes them there and he begins to show them how all of those writings point to the fact that God's plan all along was for the Messiah to suffer and die. And so then we don't, we don't know, because Luke doesn't tell us, the specific text, the specific passage of Scripture that, that Jesus takes them to, to prove and to show them that God's plan all along was for the Messiah to suffer and die. But we have a pretty decent idea of some of the text and some of the passages that he took them to. In all likelihood, he probably took them to texts like, you don't have to turn to any of these, but probably Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which speaks about the seed of the woman who's going to be bruised by the devil. Or Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, which talks about a Passover lamb who's going to be slaughtered so that God's people can be saved and rescued from death. Or Leviticus chapter 16, verse 14, which talks about atonement that can be made through the sacrificial offering of blood. Or Numbers chapter 21, verse 9, which talks about a bronze serpent being lifted up and that everyone who looks on it will be delivered from death. Or Deuteronomy chapter 27, which talks about how a cursed covenant-breaking sinners can find grace at the blood-sprinkled altar of God. Again, we don't, we don't know like all of the text, all of the passages that Jesus talks about with the Cleopas and his traveling companion here, but each of these that I just mentioned are texts that point forward to and that find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, that he's the son of the woman who was bruised on the cross. He's the lamb who offered his blood for our sins. He's the one who was lifted up for our salvation. He's the one who was cursed for all of our covenant breaking and whose blood was sprinkled on the altar of the cross. And that's just a sampling, right, from the writings of Moses. That doesn't even include all the prophets like Isaiah chapter 53, which talks about how the suffering servant is to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. It doesn't include all the messianic psalms like Psalm 16 or Psalm 22 or Psalm 31 in which King David is crying out to the Lord to save him and deliver him from the hand of his enemies who are mocking him and seeking to kill him. Like all of those, they're just a small, wee little sample of, of all the different ways in which Old Testament scriptures find their fulfillment in Jesus and his suffering and his death 
on the cross, that he's the suffering servant that was wounded and pierced and crushed for our iniquities, and he's the promised son of David who was mocked by his enemies but ultimately saved and rescued from death when he was eventually resurrected from the dead. So it's in this way then, and put all this together, it's in this way then, specifically going back to verse 26 here, this is why Jesus says that it was necessary. Like catch that. It had to happen. It could not not happen. It was necessary. He had to suffer and die. And the reason it was necessary, the reason Jesus had to suffer and die is because this was God's plan all along. His plan all along was to rescue and liberate His people through the suffering and the death of the promised Messiah King. And and this is the irony in all this, right? This is the irony of Jesus' death. That they thought... Jesus' death disqualified him from being the Messiah because Messiahs aren't supposed to die. But instead, in reality, Jesus' death proved that he was the Messiah. And not only that, but they thought his death squelched any hope of being redeemed and liberated. But in reality, his death was the means by which their and our redemption was going to take place and the means by which their and our redemption was going to be accomplished. In other words, Cleopas and, and his traveling companion, they, they probably didn't recognize this and, and realize this at the time, but they needed to be liberated, and they needed to be rescued from an enemy that was a lot more powerful and a lot more fierce than the Roman army. Instead, they needed to be liberated and they needed to be redeemed from the judgment and the wrath of God that they were under because of their sin and rebellion against the creator God of the universe. And this is huge because this is what you and I need to remember as well. Like it's easy when life gets hard and when you suffer and when you begin to just have aches and pains physically, emotionally, and just fill in the blank. It's easy to begin to think that the greatest problem in your life is financial. That if you could just be liberated and redeemed from your debt, then everything will be hunky-dory. Or it's easy to think that your greatest problem in life is emotional. It's the fear you're walking through. It's the depression you're experiencing. It's the loneliness that you feel. And if God could only just fix that, then everything would be hunky-dory. Or it's easy to think that the greatest problem you're walking through right now is relational, especially that it gets to be Christmas time. Family relationships that have been severed. Family relationships that you, yet you'd love to see reconciled. Family dinner at the Christmas table in which you th- would hope just that there would be peace and, and love. Loneliness and friendships that you wish you had. Or it's easy to think that your greatest problem in life is political. Can the government just figure things out? Make all things right. And everything will be fine. Or you think your greatest problem in life is just fill in the blank. If only this was fixed, then life would be great. The only problem is none of those things is your greatest problem or my greatest problem. Like our greatest problem in life isn't financial. Our greatest problem in life isn't emotional. Our greatest problem in life isn't relational. Our greatest problem in life isn't political. Our greatest problem in life isn't any of those things. Instead, our greatest problem in life is spiritual. 
It's that we have rebelled and sinned against the creator God of the universe. And as a result, this just God, we are under the death sentence of the just God of the universe. That we are under the just wrath and judgment of the infinitely holy God of of the universe. That is the greatest problem that Cleopas and his traveling companion had, even though they thought their greatest problem was Rome. Their greatest problem was a lot deeper and a lot more severe than Rome. And so is yours, and so is mine. And it's for that reason that it was necessary for Jesus to come and die and suffer. It was necessary for him to suffer and die not simply because it fulfilled scripture, but it was necessary for him to suffer and die because you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. And we desperately needed somebody to come and suffer and die in our place as our substitute and take the judgment and the wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't have to. That's why it was necessary for Jesus to come and suffer and die. So that's the first factor when it comes to moving from unbelief to belief. The first factor in being able to move from unbelief to belief is to have the truth of the gospel message explained to us. The gospel message isn't just that Jesus came to rescue us from all the problems in our life. The gospel message isn't that Jesus came to liberate us from all the struggles and the difficulties that we're experiencing in our lives. The gospel message is that it was necessary for Jesus to come and suffer and die in our place as our substitute to rescue us from the judgment of God that we deserve for our sins. That's factor number one. Factor number two then is this is that we must have the blinders of our eyes or of our hearts removed. We must have the blinders of our eyes or of our hearts removed. This is what we see next there in verse 28. Look there with me. Luke writes this. So they drew near to the village, talking about Emmaus, to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. So here you have Jesus, Cleopas, and whoever this third unnamed person is. Some people think it's Cleopas' wife. We're not for sure here. But it's getting dark. It's getting late. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to keep walking. And they're like, it's getting dark. It's getting late. Why don't you come and stay, stay with us? And so that's exactly what Jesus does. They invite Jesus to stay with them for the evening, and he comes and stays. And as he comes and stays with them, he sits down at the table to eat a meal together with them. And look what happens in verse 30 as they're enjoying this meal together. Luke writes in verse 30, When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. So if you've been with us for any length of time throughout the Gospel of Luke, you know that meals are a really big deal all throughout the Gospel of Luke. Like some writers say that Luke is the Gospel in which Jesus is just eating his way through it. And that is, there's a lot of truth to that. But there's a reason for that. Luke just doesn't include every time Jesus is eating. He includes a lot of them, but he doesn't include every single time. But the reason he includes the ones that he does is because there's always something really important that's going on at the table and at that specific meal. And that's what we see happening here. But more importantly, what we see happening here is that this language that Luke uses there in verse 30, he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. That language there, we've seen that specific language a couple other times in the Gospel of Luke at specific meals 
in which Jesus was t- partaking in. We saw it, you don't have to look there, but in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus was feeding the 5,000, we saw it in Luke chapter 22, during the Passover meal, when Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper with his disciples. In both of those other occurrences, we see the same exact language that Luke uses here. Jesus took the bread, he, broke, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And so then, put all this together, when Cleopas and his traveling companion see Jesus doing the exact same thing here at a meal, taking the bread, blessing it, breaking it, and give it to him, give it, giving it to them. Then it's like they, it clicks. It's like the aha moment. It's like they put it all, put all the pieces together. And they're like, a meal at a table, bread, blessing, breaking, giving, feeding of the 5,000, institution of the Lord's Supper, now this, boom, boom, boom. We know who you are. You're the Messiah. What those women said about the empty tomb, we know where the body went. He's at this table. What the angel said about being alive, like, that's not nonsense. That's not an idle tale. Like, that, that's, that's true. And probably what blew their minds is, this stranger <laughs> who we've been talking to for the last seven miles and explaining to him all these things that have happened like he didn't know what's happened. That's Jesus. And we're eating with him. He's alive. He's risen. And then I don't know what to make of, and he vanished from their sight. But I trust in the trustworthiness and the authority of Scripture, and it means what it means, and it means what it says, and it's exactly what he did. But look, don't get too caught up on that. Look at verse 32. Look what what these Cleopas and his traveling companion do. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Meaning when he was taking us in the writings of Moses and the prophets and Messianic Psalms and all the rest of the Old Testament scripture, and he's showing us about the Messiah and how he must suffer and die and how he must suffer and die. And he showed us all of this all throughout. We were wondering at that time why our hearts were connecting with that. Why why our hearts were burning when he was showing us that? Why why it made sense to us? Yeah, and something was happening. Something different was happening inside of us. Now we know why it all makes sense now. Then look what they did in verse 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11. Talking about the 11 disciples, because Judas, remember, he went AWOL and. 11 disciples, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So Jesus already appeared to to Simon Peter before he appeared to Cleopas and his traveling companion. Verse 35, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So then put all that together. What, What a turnaround. What a turnaround. At the beginning of this passage, just feel this in your heart, right? All their hopes were in Jesus to be the Messiah, to liberate and to rescue them from their bondage and captivity and under Roman rule. But then they kill him and they crucify him. So all their hopes are gone. They're sad, they're dejected, they're disillusioned. No hope. But now at the end of the passage... They're filled with all kinds of hope. They're celebrating. They're rejoicing. They, 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 they believe. They believe that Jesus is alive. They believe that He's been risen from the dead. They, they believe. So then here's the question. What changed? Why'd they, how'd they go from unbelief to belief? How'd they go from sad, hopeless, dejected, to joy and celebration. What, what changed? 
What, what caused them to go from believing that Jesus was dead and not the Messiah to believing that Jesus is alive and is the Messiah? Well, the answer is definitely not Jesus. Because he was with them the whole time. He'd been, he'd been traveling with them physically, resurrected body, with them in their unbelief when they were clueless and didn't believe. And his physical resurrected body was with them in their belief. And so obviously, Jesus wasn't the decisive factor in causing them to go from unbelief to belief. Because he was with them when they, were, when they weren't believing and when they were believing. So, so it wasn't him. So don't credit him with that. It wasn't the women's testimony either. And all the reasons that they gave. It wasn't the angel's pronouncement. Because when they heard the women's testimony and they heard the angel's pronouncement, they didn't believe that either. Instead, do you know what it was? Do, do you know what the decisive factor was that caused these two, who at one point didn't believe, what caused them to believe? Well, Luke tells us in verse 31. Verse 31, he says, four words. Their eyes were opened. And again, it's important you notice here those four words. It's written in the passive voice. And what that means is that the subject, meaning Cleopas and the traveling companion, weren't doing the action, weren't doing the acting. Instead, the passive voice means that there's something outside of them or someone outside of them that was doing the action upon them, that was acting upon them. So what that means then is that there was something or someone outside of them that caused their eyes to be opened. They were just passive recipients. It was something or someone outside of them that opened their eyes for them. They didn't do it themselves. They were simply the passive recipients of someone or something outside of them that acted upon them and that caused, that opened their eyes for them. And do you know who that someone or something was outside of them that opened their eyes for them? It was God. It, it was God. In other words, the only reason that Cleopas and his traveling companion were able to see that Jesus to see and believe that Jesus had been resurrected is because God graciously yet sovereignly removed the blinders from their eyes to allow them to see and believe. That's the only reason. And make no mistake about this. God didn't have to do that. Like, God was under no obligation whatsoever to open their eyes. I mean, just a few days later, just think about this. The, these two, with the rest of the disciples, had left Jesus. That they'd abandoned Jesus. They'd lost all hope in Jesus. They didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah anymore. They didn't believe that Jesus had been resurrected and was the risen Christ anymore. They didn't believe any of that. They left him. They abandoned him. They lost all faith. They didn't believe anymore. And so then God would have been justified to keep their eyes shut and to keep them in their unbelief and to condemn them in their unbelief. 
But he doesn't do that, does he? Instead, in his grace and in his kindness, he takes the blinders off their eyes and he allows them to see. And when they see, then they believe. And this is, this is huge. Like This is humongous. This isn't just them. This is a picture of what salvation looks like for us as, as well. Like, like don't, don't get me wrong, there's a time and a place for things like apologetics. We did even some of that like last Sunday. There's a, there's a time and a place for giving reasons for why we should believe in the resurrection. Like there's a lot of good resources out there to help us think through evidence for, for why Jesus was resurrected and for why he came back to life and conquered death and, and all those things. And there's a time and a place for reasons and evidence and arguments and all of those things. The same time, it's imperative that we remember that becoming a Christian and believing that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that believe, believing that Jesus was resurrected from dead. It's not ultimately a matter of evidence. It's not ultimately a matter of arguments. It's not ultimately a matter of reasons. Instead, it's ultimately a matter of God supernaturally removing the blinders of our eyes and giving his eyes to see and believe it. And if he doesn't do that, we will never, ever, ever see. Which means then, that if you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you believe, you believe that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, you trust that, you've embraced that, you're banking your entire life on that. The reason you believe that isn't because you're smarter than everyone, everyone else. It's not because you just read a lot and studied a lot and came to that conclusion. The reason you believe that has nothing to do with you. The reason that you believe that has everything to do with the grace and the kindness and the mercy of God. For some unknown reason, supernaturally, removing the blinders from your eyes and from your heart and giving you eyes to see and believe. And there was absolutely no reason that you can find in and of yourself for why he would do that for you and for why he would do that for me. None. It's not because of the faith he foresaw that you would have in the future. It's not because he thought you were sincere and trying your hardest. It's not because of your church attendance. It's not because you're a good person and your good works outweigh your bad works. Instead, the only reason he opened your eyes to see it's because of his kindness and grace. And the reality of this Christmas season of that should humble us. That when we look at the manger, when we look at the nativity scene, when we look at Jesus, that we can look at that baby and be filled with tears in our eyes and look at that baby and see a king and look at that baby and see the risen Christ, the reality of that should humble us because we had nothing to do with that. And the reality of that should cause us to be filled with praise and worship and joy because he supernaturally gave us eyes to see. And if you're here this morning and you aren't a Christian, and you're skeptical of the resurrection, you're skeptical of passages that we've looked at this morning, and you have a hard time seeing and, and believing like many do here this morning. Oh, I just pray 
first of all, that you would go back to this word and that you would see how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan all along. That from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, that the whole story of God's plan of redemption centered around the suffering and the death of the Messiah King and that Jesus is the fulfillment of that in our place for our sins. And as you come and and are confronted with the reality of Jesus' death in your place for your sin and judgment that you deserve for your sins, I pray that God would supernaturally open your eyes to see and believe like he's done for many of us here this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. As we're reminded just of our inability, of our humanness, of how hopeless and desperate that we were and that even some here still are. That just as sad and hopeless Cleopas and his traveling companion felt when it came to the liberation and the redemption of Israel from Rome, That is how sad and and hopeless we were as we were under the just judgment of God because of our sin. And you had every right to keep us there. It's not even as if we were stretching out our arm asking for help. Because we weren't. It's not like we were even opening our eyes looking and waiting for someone to come and rescue us. We didn't want it. We didn't ask for it. Instead, we were enjoying the depravity and enjoying living in opposition to you. But just as Cleopas and his traveling companion did, didn't go and search after Jesus within this passage. But instead, Jesus came to search after them. That's exactly what Jesus has done for us. That Jesus didn't wait for us to take the initiative because if he was going to wait for us to take the initiative, he was going to wait forever because we were never going to take the initiative. Instead, Jesus in his kindness and his grace toward us, he took the initiative toward us. And the eternal Son of God took on human flesh and was supernaturally born of a virgin to live and die the, to live the life we, we could not live and die the death we deserve on the cross because it was necessary to fulfill God's plan of redemption. Not the redemption of liberating Israel from Rome, but the redemption of being rescued and liberated from the judgment we deserve for our sins. And so, God, I pray that the reality of that truth would ring true this Christmas season as we go about and busy ourselves with all that we have to busy ourselves with. And I pray that at the center of that would be the resurrected King Jesus and that we would remember that the only reason that we believe is because you have given us eyes to see and eyes to believe. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.